I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. These midweek extra episodes are a chance for us to go deep on a particular topic. And today we have on the program Dr. Gerardo Marty, and we're going to discuss his book, The Glass Church, Robert H. Schuler, The Crystal Cathedral, and the Strain of Megachurch Ministry. This book caught my attention because I think it fills in an important chapter in the story of the evangelical movement. Many people, including me, have traced the rise of the evangelical movement to the Jesus music of the 1970s, the rise of cable television, maybe the contemporary Christian music movement, or perhaps the Willow Creek seeker model of the 1980s and 90s. And to be sure, those influences were indeed powerful. But Gerardo Marty and his co-author, Mark Mulder, say that what Robert Schuller was doing as early as the late 1950s and early 60s with drive-in churches and a sophisticated use of media and events predate and provide a roadmap for many who followed, and that the rise and fall of Robert Schuller's Crystal Cathedral provide lessons that we should learn today. Gerardo Marty, my guest today, is the L. Richardson King Professor of Sociology at Davidson College in Davidson, North Carolina. He's written a number of books about religion and culture, and he served for many years as editor-in-chief of the peer-reviewed journal Sociology of Religion a quarterly review. Dr. Marty, welcome to the program. I really found your book, um, The Glass Church, uh, nourishing in part because I remember Dr. Schuler pretty well. Uh, you know, I'm of an age where, you know, when I was young and even into adulthood, he was still on television. But for those who are not of a certain age, my age, <laughs> uh, can you kind of remind everybody who was Dr. Robert Schuler? Well, thanks so much. Good to spend time with you. Mark Mulder and I, uh, who wrote the book, uh, we wrote the book together. uh, We're both sociologists who were attracted to the most important things and the most uh, culture shaping aspects of religion in America. And there is no doubt that Robert H. Schuller is one of the nodal points for American religion in the 20th century. He was a person who innovated Uh, what modern religion would look like, making it accessible, being a part of what is widely called the church growth movement. He embraced media and became one of the prominent televangelists. And he also promoted a way of doing church by sponsoring an institute to train leaders to manage their churches in particular ways um, and included a lot of advice that became standard management uh, advice for clergy regardless of denomination and regardless even of their age, um, that is still widely implemented today. So 
He is an architect, I think, of modern uh, Christianity. Well, I certainly understand that. And I kind of th- you know, thought that about him before, but your book really clarified and sort of codified some of the ways, the specific ways that Dr. Schuler uh, has been so influential. And we're going to talk about some of the folks that have emerged downstream from Dr. Schuler, the Willow Creek Movement, Rick Warren, Joel Osteen, and, and more and more. But before we get there, I want to unpack a little bit of what Dr. Schuler believed himself. He came out of the RCA Church, the Reformed Church in America. He was very proud of that association. Uh, he touted that association uh, often, uh, and the fact that it was the oldest, he, he said, and I think there was some validity to this claim, the oldest Protestant denomination in this country. But he was not an RCA kind of a guy. I mean, uh, he created some tension within the RCA. Um, other clergy there weren't sure quite what to make of him. Can you talk about kind of that strained relationship between uh, Dr. Schuler and the RCA, a kind of a love-hate relationship in some ways? Yeah, Robert H. Schuler definitely felt a call to ministry very early in his life and was deeply connected to the Dutch Reformed movement. And so he went to Hope College and he graduated from there in terms of his ministry degree and immediately went to an RCA church and was quite successful there. Uh, it was the base of his ordination. It was his base of his understanding where his uh, doctrine and um, orthodoxy came from in terms of belief. It also provided a profound point of legitimation for him. He did not see himself as a weird or eccentric. Um, he saw himself as deeply rooted in the Christian tradition. And I think what he embraced was the notion of being missional. And that as a person who would be a missionary and establish a mission church in California, that's where I think he took everything that he had learned in the successful church that he had uh, in Illinois and took all of that and really expanded on it um, to the nth degree in ways that I don't think he could have anticipated with a growing, um, a vibrant religiously hot atmosphere there in Orange County. Well, in fact, you said that uh, it, it, he succeeded even beyond his own dreams, or, or and he had a habit, and we'll, maybe we'll be able to come and uh, come back and say more about this later. He had a habit of kind of looking back on his successes and saying that he planned them that way all along, when in some cases he was just, I, you know, I don't believe in luck, but we'll just say he got lucky, um, and or there was a... Um, you know, he did have uh, a talent of, of for being opportunistic, that whenever he saw an opportunity, he did immediately jump on it. But before we kind of get to that part of his ministry, the California part, I want to stick with him in the Midwest. So he, he's an RCA pastor. He's a pastor of this very small church. He does have some success, but we're not talking about mega church success. We're talking about took a tiny little church and grew it up to three, four, five hundred people is my recollection. Uh, and while he is doing that, even though, again, his, his, his uh, background, his theology, his, ba- his training, his education uh, is in sort of that Dutch Reformed tradition, he was also reading uh, Norman Vincent Peale as well. And uh, can you tell everybody who Norman Vincent Peale uh, was and is, because he's still being read today, and especially the power of positive thinking and how that became also an important pillar of Robert Schuler's theology as well. Yeah, well, 
I think there are three important influences that happened with Robert H. Schuller before he moved to California. I wish we knew a lot more about his ministry there because it was deeply formative in ways that he didn't really talk about. Uh, and you have to read between the lines and really look to, for it to really say, okay, where did this guy come from? Because it did not come from his seminary education. Once he decided that he was going to be a pastor, he committed himself to be a pastor of excellence, one that would be effective in the pulpit with his people and building the institution of the church. He certainly had a strong ecclesiology in that he believed that the physical structure of the church was important for the accomplishing of the ministry, and that included the pulpit as well as the expansive programs that could happen. So he began to read what he considered to be the most successful, the most exciting preachers of the day, and Norman Vincent Peale was someone who was very dynamic. He had a message that seemed to touch people regardless of their own denominational commitments. And people were reading Norman Vincent Peale and listening to him all over the place. And so he took Norman Vincent Peale as, in a sense, his mentor. He eventually had a relationship with him, but he really embraced this notion of popularizing a, a message that would hit people where their need was. And that need really rested with upwardly mobile men who were executives and trying to climb the corporate ladder. And all of the anxieties and um, difficulties that were involved in trying to make your way and build your family and to establish some sense of stability and still be patriotic and a Christian and have integrity. I think those are the kinds of things that he felt that Norman Vincent Peale spoke to. And that's where um, he took the power of positive thinking and innovated it into a slant that he called possibility thinking. Well, and if I could maybe compare and contrast the two for just a minute, you you have Norman Vincent Peale, who likewise um, came out of a very uh, orthodox, I think pe- many uh, evangelicals would say that he was biblically orthodox, that his theology was was biblically sound, and yet his power of positive thinking in the mind of many, and I think there's in, in my, and I would have to, I'll, I'll confess that I'm one of those, I think he departed from the way of biblical orthodoxy, that his, some of his teachings, I think, in fact, were uh, opposed to historical Christian thinking and that power of positive thinking. Likewise, Robert Schuller, his his um, mentee, his protege, started out in the RCA, Dutch Reform, solid biblical teaching, and the power of possibility thinking departed, many people would say, from uh, Orthodox Christian theology. In particular, it sort of ventured into what some called new thought, and it would it would downplay sin and um, sort of um, ex- ex- um, exaggerated the ability of you and me, humankind, to um, uh, to place mind over matter, we you know positive thinking, enthusiasm, uh, rah rah, go for it, never say die. Spirit can literally overcome physical barriers, which I think Christian orthodoxy would say, yeah, maybe not so much, right? Am I am I am I fairly characterizing these two? We certainly write a lot about that, and I think that the way that you express it is very much what you see 
and other people reading Robert Schuller, the reason why I go ahead and tie in his ecclesiology is that I think it helps us to see why is it that Robert H. Schuller saw himself as fully orthodox. He believed that he was fully doctrinally orthodox, and he felt that he was actually exemplifying the truths of the faith in ways that had been obscured by the institutional church. Norman Vincent Peale is an important influence, but there are two others that I think are important before he makes his way to California. One is that the growth that he produced in his church successfully meant that he had to do a building program. And the fact that he was successful in his building program, I thought is uh, is something that carried forward into the confidence that he took in the building of architecture later in Southern California with far more ambitious projects. And the third influence that I don't think anybody really talks about uh, is the fact that he hired a professional fundraising firm to help him in raising the funds that would allow for those expansions. And I believe that Robert H. Schuller took careful notes of what they did professionally to raise money as a process so that he then invoked that process as a fundraiser himself when he moved to California. So he became fundraiser in chief. And the only way that he could see the potential of being able to do that is by having this notion of possibility that we can do more than you can physically see. This is an enactment of faith, and that enactment of faith allows you to step forward more boldly than a typical pastor or denominational leader might want you to. Well, yeah, and he even called some of his critics impossibility thinkers. He was he was a possibility thinker, and some of his critics were, impo- including those lead in the leadership of his own denomination. He was not shy necessarily about uh, about that as well. Well, let me let me stay on this idea for just a minute because you, in good Baptist fashion, now Dr. Marty, I don't think you're a Southern Baptist, but in good Baptist fashion, y'all came up with three C's. Uh, to describe Dr. Schuler, you said constituency, charisma, and capital were the three C's that were really driving forces. And and the uh, constituency was uh, kind of this idea that we've already been talking about where, you know, he really paid attention to the felt needs of the folks around him. He called it, I believe, uh, in his day, easy access. He wanted to create an easy access church. But today we might call that a seeker-sensitive model, which was uh, paying attention to your constituency. Who, who, in fact, are you trying to serve? Charisma, we've already kind of alluded to. Uh, Norman Vincent Peale was a a, a media star, wrote a book, um, The Power of Positive Thinking, that sold tens of millions of copies. So he thought charisma was a part of it. And now you've introduced this idea of capital, where Capital raising, fundraising, especially for big capital projects uh, like his church um, in the Midwest in Illinois, became a big part of what he took with him to California. I mean, he would um, have these massive capital campaigns and build these amazing structures. And so those, even from an early age, though, those were three core ideas in his ministry. Yes. Well, what we did in terms of uh, when Professor Mark Mulder and I worked together and started to dig through archival material that really no one had looked at before, and you're faced with trying to understand the complexity of a 50-plus year ministry, as well as the fact that he talked about his own ministry in particular ways. As a sociologist, we go, okay, 
is it what he says it is or is it something else? And we came to an analytical language. And these three C's that you brought up with, I think, are very helpful for us, not only to understand Robert H. Schuller's ministry, but really any ministry that's around us. Any church is going to require constituents. You've got to have people who are around, people who are doing things, people who are, are not just followers, but actually active participants in what's happening within the ministry. You've got to have charisma. Even the smallest church has to have a leader or set of leaders that are able to call people forth to be able to make those commitments, follow along, resonate with the vision, and move forward. But I think that the least studied aspect of church life is the flow of capital. Every church leader knows you've got to have resources in order to make the ministry happen. It may not always be discussed. It may be obscured by visionary language. It may be theologized in different ways. But the fact of the matter is that every leader has to think about how they're going to cover expenses, where they're going to move for the future for salaries, for taking care of buildings, maintenance costs, and any aspect of vision is always also going to require resourcing. And I think Robert H. Schuler is distinguished by having devoted more time considering the workings of capital, not being afraid of using capital, and also leveraging these new financial mechanisms that were coming about in the latter part of the 20th century. And that is the releasing of credit, the willingness of banks to give lots and lots of money to churches using new mechanisms of measuring their stability and therefore giving space for a church that is only so big to have ambitions to be far bigger and to actually have the financial leverage for that bigness in anticipation of future revenue. So those calculations, I think, are part of what um, Robert Schuller called his philosophy of capital. And it's very explicit in a memo that he wrote, and he certainly lived it out. And then he taught it to generations of pastors. He told them, don't be afraid of debt. He always said, you need more space than you think you do. Because for Schuller, he said, you can't just go with what you have right now. You have to go with where you're going. And considerations of capital would always be important to that picture. Well, Dr. Marta, we've got to get um, uh, Robert Schuler out to California or we're going to run out of time here. Uh, <laughs> we've been, uh, so, so he goes to California. He packs up his family, goes out to California, uh, Los Angeles. It's, you know, starting to grow. It's the 1950s. And, you know, I mean, there's just a, a you know, post-war boom is happening there. But, uh, you, you know, he can't find a place to meet at all. I mean, he, he tries, you know, the city, he goes down to Orange County, which is where he ends up. But even in Orange County, uh, partly because it hadn't started developing yet, um, there was no place. So he finds a movie theater, a drive-in movie theater, and uh, sets up church there. To me, this was a really interesting example of how, you know, he kind of got out in front of a riot and called himself the grand marshal of a parade. I mean, it was like he, he, he would define what happened after the fact and not really be honest and truthful about what was really happening. This was not some innovative idea. This was not some, you know, remark. I mean, I, I guess in some ways it was innovative because other, others might have given up. But this was really a function of necessity. Necessity became the mother of invention in this case. Can you talk about how Orange County is so important to this story and that drive-in theater is so important to this story? 
Yes, if you look at the census data, you will see a remarkable shift of migration happening in the United States around that time. People from the um, the Midwest and from the South were all moving to California. And California became this vibrant area, not just of growth, but of people who were already churched. And I think it's important to emphasize that the atmosphere that he stepped in was religiously active. It was vibrant. The reason he couldn't find space is because the Baptists and the Methodists and the Lutherans and everybody else had already taken every available slot uh, possible, including funeral homes, schools, if they would let them, any place that they could. And so eventually when he stepped into that snack bar and said, we'd like to have church here, the snack, they said, well, well you can't hold it here. And he's like, no, we'll just be on the roof and invite people over. And he was able then to also have in his mind that knowing that we have a lot of people who come with denominational connections, we're not going to grow the church based on your denomination. There are going to be very few people who are from the RCA or Dutch, Dutch Reformed tradition who are coming to Southern California. We are going to appeal to people on the basis of their being Christian, but still needing a church. So come in the family car became the motto. And that's what eventually grew the church phenomenally, uh, so that even when they built a small church, which uh, was called the chapel, he quickly outgrew that, still kept the drive-in theater, and eventually innovated a brand new building that was an inside-outside building. It had space for people to sit on the inside, but by moving an, a glass door, he could step out on the balcony and speak to all of the cars that had been arrayed out in the parking lot who also came for the same church service. Yeah. So that hybrid building uh, was an extension of the success that he had at the movie theater um, and uh, and eventually uh, continued to keep that even in the Crystal Cathedral that had these wide double doors in order to open to the outside and a jumbotron that still allowed people to come in their car and experience church. You know, Dr. Martin, I don't want to wander too far afield in this conversation, but, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a book called The Tyranny of Experts. And certainly within the evangelical world, we've got, you know, people that are, you know, church growth experts, and they'll do surveys and all kinds of stuff, and they will tell you, you know, the 10 things that you need to do to get your church past that 150 you know, member uh, barrier or that 450 member barrier or that 2000 member barrier or whatever it is. And I think in some ways, the story of Dr. Schuler is that demography is destiny, that that there was not, I mean, yeah, he did, he made a lot of good moves, but there were probably also other smart people in Orange, California at that time doing many of the same things that he was doing. And, um, and not having the kind of success he did, uh, or in other parts of the country doing the things that he was doing and not having that kind of success because they were in Orange County. And, and the folks in Orange County not doing some of the things that he was doing and having success just because they were in Orange County at a time whenever the place was just exploding. And I, I guess my, my point is, I, am I reading too much into your book to view it in some ways as a cautionary tale against being too heavily dependent or putting too much faith in gurus within the church? <laughs> well, I think that the book is very explicit to try to lay out how did Schuler accomplish what he did and 
um, how he implemented it, you know, to try to go with as much nitty gritty detail, because I do hope that church leaders and people who are interested in the future of the church can pay attention to what happened there. Schuler certainly believed in marketing, and I don't believe in uh, that many church leaders would deny that some aspect of marketing is important. Um, uh, Schuler believed in um, hyping different things and having events at his church. I think very few church leaders would argue against that. So he may have been ahead of the curve in certain ways. But he did everything he could to channel people into his congregation. Hmm. And he didn't believe that he was above doing those kinds of things because he believed ultimately that would serve people who would otherwise not come to church. Now, in terms of what we need to pay attention to, I do think that Schuler overestimated his own optimism of being able to keep constituency, charisma, and capital in this awkward balance. Because as you grow in constituents, it's going to require a different kind of uh, operation of charisma, and all uh, and all of that is going to uh, de- define how capital needs are going to shift as well. So, being able to hold these things in tandem is part of the complexity of clergy life today, I think. And everyone who is at that level, whether it's clergy, trustees, elders, anybody who's involved in the infrastructure of the organization of the church has to pay attention to these things. So Robert Schuller did not see the consequences of different decisions that he had made, felt that past successes would just simply extrapolate forward into future successes. And he also overestimated that the liberality of credit that had happened in the 1980s in particular would just continue indefinitely. Certainly, we know in the 2000s and even today that credit just does not operate in the same way. And so we have challenges in that light. Well, Dr. Marty, we're going to have to skip over a lot to kind of get to the punchline and land this airplane, so to speak. And uh, so let let us just kind of, you know, fast forward here a little bit. Ultimately, all of those um, characteristics or all all of those realities that you've just identified eventually did catch up with him. Another thing that really caught up with him was that as Orange County grew, um, it became much more diverse that uh, in the beginning, Orange County was a fairly wealthy, uh, white, mostly conservative, a Republican uh, bedroom community for Los Angeles. But over time, that ended up not being the case. It, it grew dramatically. It certainly continued to have some affluent pockets, but it became much more of a working class, middle class uh, part of Los Angeles. Um, and um, th- things just changed and he didn't change with them. Is that fair enough? Yeah, that's right. Orange County was considered a bedroom community to Los Angeles in a post-World War II Los Angeles, which meant that a lot of people who had located, relocated there were involved in the defense industry and were also incredibly pro-government in terms of uh, believing that uh, free market economics, the expansion of capitalist structures, uh, the kinds of things that you might see as, um, as sort of libertarian thought was fundamental to the area and fundamental to Schuler's ministry. So even though other ministries like the Vineyard, Campus, uh, uh, Calvary Chapel, um, the different parachurch ministries that emerged, all of those movements did not participate in what we might consider right-wing politics. Schuler did not see himself as serving that community and did not see those people as um, right. They didn't. He didn't see them as having a proper kind of Christian attitude towards the world. Mm-hmm. And so 
What he did not factor in was the migration changes, um, shifts in immigration patterns, particularly because of the 1965 Hart-Seller Act. So now you have an increase in Latino ancestries. You have an increase in Asian ancestries from different countries. And all of those find their ways in a, in a still economically vibrant Orange County, uh, but they are not churched in the same way as those people who had come from Oklahoma, Mississippi, and Texas, and places like that. Yeah. So all of a sudden, he's saying there are people who are coming who who do not understand Christianity and are not um, aware of even how church works. So when Schuler uses the word unchurched, he really meant people who did not have a current church membership. He didn't mean people who didn't understand what Christianity was about. And so when he faced that challenge, the structure of the church didn't exactly know what to do with that and yeah, continued yeah. to just play the same strategy over and over again with what became a shrinking percentage of people and an even more competitive church marketplace, if you will. More yeah. options. Yeah. Well, again, we're going to have to skip to the end here, but ultimately what happened, I mean, you, you keep saying Robert H. Schuler. You say that at least in part because Dr. Schuler, Robert H. Schuler's son, Robert, I believe, A. Schuler, uh, you know, took over for a season. And then, of course, our grandson, Bobby Schuler, is now a pastor in Southern California as well. So your Robert H. is not pedantry, but it is, in fact, clarity, <laughs> let us stipulate for the record. And um, because there there, there was a, a legacy there, there was a, an empire. But um, that empire, the legacy, perhaps maybe not, because I know Bobby Schuler today, and I, you know, I think he's doing, um, you know, good work for the kingdom of God. Personally, that's my assessment. Um, but certainly, the empire came to an end. Uh, today, the the uh, fabulous Crystal Cathedral, I believe, is now owned by the Catholic Church um, in Southern California. Uh, Doctor Schuler himself, of course, has passed away. Um, his um, Robert A. Schuler was embroiled in some scandals, so there was um, there was uh, a demise, if you will, to the empire. But uh, again, the legacy continues, and 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 I'd like for you to talk about that legacy, not necessarily in the Crystal Cathedral or in the Schuler family, but writ large in evangelicalism. What role, for example, did uh, Robert H. Schuler and the Crystal Cathedral have on Willow Creek? What role did it have in shaping Joel Osteen? What role did it have in shaping uh, some of the competitors in Southern California, including Rick Warren and uh, Greg Laurie and the Calvary Chapel movement? Mm -hmm. Yes, well, I think that we're in this really intriguing moment where we are recovering a history of, of things, some of which people knew as they lived it in the time, but a lot of things that we didn't know. And so our attempt to highlight the critical role that Robert H. Schuller played in determining the leadership structures that would move forward in evangelicalism in particular, megachurch ministries in particular, but really all of church life um, is something that I think a lot of people have forgotten. Um, so we have to remind them that Robert A. Schuller even existed and that he had this ministry that affected millions and millions of people and that thousands and thousands of pastors would sit literally at his feet in order to try to understand, did he have an answer for the biggest question at the time, which is, will the church survive? another century. You know, we deal with the, um, the understanding that the church is, is um, faltering and that no church leader feels confident that their church is going to survive another 20 years, let alone 10 or even five. So 
what he did was to foster a way of thinking about things, which has then been innovated by people that Robert Schuler considered his students. That includes Rick Warren and what happened at Willow Creek, the purpose-driven church, um, uh, in particular, that philosophy, uh, the things that happened with Joel Osteen in the way in which he constructed this large congregation and managed that and continues to survive there. Uh, but frankly, even when we look at small churches, I think that fewer of them are looking at their seminary experience or are not even bothering to go to seminary. And instead picking up a book or joining a network or joining a, a call with other executive pastors, getting very pragmatic advice about what to do next. And that, that um, movement away from theology and more towards a pragmatism, I think is a quite important legacy that we see coming out of Robert H. Schuler's ministry. Um, and there's a warning there because what he thought he was solving didn't necessarily solve it in the way that he thought it could in perpetuity. But still, I think that he gave us a language for thinking through the management of church structures that is still with us today. Yeah. Well, and you were very uh, diligent and scrupulous and fair-minded in your book not to put too much of a judgment on uh, that legacy. But I can I will go ahead and say <laughs> out loud that I think that that legacy is um, destructive whenever management techniques become more important than theological training, which I think for many that has been the case. Um, I think that's a problem for the church. I don't know that y'all said that um, so directly in your book, but that was one of the lessons that I took away from it. Well, I think that inevitably, because of the structures that we live in today, I don't think that many uh, churches can just be naive at saying, we're just going to preach the gospel and everything will be fine. I think in the end, every church leader has to really think about the organizational issues. So the only thing that I would add to your comments is that, the, that this book gives you a layout of how Robert H. Schuler chose to deal with those management issues. And for all of us, we all need to be thinking about if there is going to be a future of the church, how can we wrestle with these things and come to terms with them, perhaps in a more satisfying way than the way um, has been expressed at the moment. But I don't think that you could um, not pay attention to management issues. And I think that's probably the key thing to come away with. Well, and I, the, I found the book very nourishing. So thank you, Dr. Marty, for writing it with your co-author, uh, Mark Mulder. It's called The Glass Church, Robert H. Schuler, The Crystal Cathedral, and The Strain of Megachurch Ministry. We really didn't even talk about the strain of megachurch ministry. We didn't talk um, about um, uh, Dr. Schuler and the ECFA, the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. We didn't talk about the the Jim Baker and the um, and the uh, Jimmy Swaggart scandals, which which informed the way he did television ministry in some powerful ways. There's just so much we were not able to talk about, but we're able to talk about some important things. And I really appreciate your time, appreciate this book, and let me just encourage everybody to go get it. And um, yeah, you'll be able to talk about those things among yourselves from now on. So. Again, thanks a bunch. Gerardo Marty, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to my conversation with Dr. Gerardo Marty. He is a professor of sociology at Davidson College and the co-author, along with Mark Mulder, of the book that we've been talking about today, The Glass Church, Robert H. Schuler, The Crystal Cathedral, and the Strain of Megachurch Ministry.
Before we go, I'd like to just share with you a quick reminder that this show exists because of the generosity of our readers and listeners. We take no money from the ministries we cover. There's no advertising on our website. We are completely listener and reader funded. If you'd like to make a donation to Ministry Watch, just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the Donate tab at the top of the page. And if money's a little tight right now, hey, I get it. Been there myself a time or two. But you can still help the program. Just rate us on our podcast app. The more ratings we get, the higher we rank with search engines. And that means other people can find us more easily. Rating us just takes a second. Doesn't cost you a dime. It's free and easy and important. It's a way you can support the ministry at no cost. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. I'm Warren Smith, and until next time, may God bless you.